Okay, an introduction to the four Sangravastus. Uh, so the title of my talk is Sangha as Practice, the four Sangravastus. So I thought I'd ask the question to start with, why do we value Sangha? If we do value Sangha, why do we value Sangha? Um, this is something for you to think about, not to answer right away, but... Um, yeah, what is it about Sangha that we value? And my answer to that, one of my answers to that would be Sangha is where the Dharma comes alive. In a way, without the Sangha, there isn't a Dharma. Uh, that we meet the Dharma through the Sangha. So books aren't enough, I would say. Even free Buddhist audio isn't enough, although that comes a close, a close uh, second. So all of those things can, are, are really important. Books, um, uh, you know, um, videos, whatever, of the Dharma. Very inspiring, informative, stimulating. But they're essentially limited because they're not people. <coughs> they can't talk to us. Uh, well, they can in a way, but they can't answer questions usually. Um, or hear, they can't hear our experience. They're not with us, are they, in person? Well, they can't give us a hug, that's for sure. I mean, technology is getting better and better, <laughs> but it has its limits. They can't meditate alongside us, uh, they can't encourage us, and, and they're probably not going to love us in the way that members of the Sangha can do, uh, or hate us for that matter. Yeah, so uh, there's just a lot more that, uh, that yeah, that we, we do need, we need people, we need the Sangha. We need the Sangha because that's where we find the Dharma and that's where we practice the Dharma with each other. Books and ideas can seem um, really quite straightforward and particularly to start with. I remember in a way the Dharma is very easy to understand. It's famously easy-ish easy to understand, but very, very hard to put into practice, isn't it? And there's that lovely story, Zen story, about the Chinese emperor, I think, who uh, met um, Buddha, is it Bodhidharma, that's right, and uh, wanted this great pearl of wisdom from Bodhidharma. I hope, I hope I'm right with Bodhidharma. Uh, anyway, uh, good as, thank you, Ratnasagra. Um, and so, and he'd come a long way to meet the emperor. So the emperor was really, you know, waiting. And uh, the story goes that when the moment came for their audience, and uh, the emperor said, so, okay, tell me what your greatest wisdom, your greatest teaching is. And Bodhidharma said, cease to do evil, cultivate the good, purify the heart. This is the essence of Buddhism. And then the emperor was completely horrified because he no doubt paid good money to get Bodhidharma there. And anybody could have told him that. Uh, and so Bodhidharma said, well, yes, that's right. Um, anybody could have told you that. A child of three could, or maybe eight, could understand that. But uh, it's interesting that an old man of 85 can't put it into practice. So that was a very cheeky re reply on his part, and I think he lived to tell the tale. But you know, that's a famously that is a, that was what Buddhism is like, really, isn't it? So we we can actually think in a way that well, I can remember myself coming on to Dharma classes and uh, getting very filled up and inspired by Dharma talks, and almost feeling as though um, I'd completely transformed because I felt so different and. I sort of really felt I knew the Dharma, uh, but it, it really that was a path of vision um, and there's a path of transformation that we need to transform ourselves in body, speech and mind. Uh, and it's, it's a, you know, in a way it's a, 
it's a long path, uh, although every step is very significant on that path. There's a difference between vision and transformation. And I think transformation is what we can do with our friends in the Sangha, with each other. Um, we can do it on our meditation cushions, obviously, on our own as well. But if we are completely on our own the whole time, well, I know people do do that, so they say in the remote Himalayas, uh, but it seems to be quite rare for people to be able to effectively practice on their own ongoingly, um, mainly because we become so deluded. We think we thought we think we've gained enlightenment or whatever, whereas actually nobody's actually challenged us. And uh, uh, yeah, and the the other thing, I, well, from my own experience, and probably you could recognise something like this. I can remember meditating in the community at Taraloka and realising there was this little pattern that I'd get into the lovely state before breakfast in the morning. Then I'd walk down into the kitchen to get my breakfast, and there were all these people in the way. You know, I wanted just to make a bit of toast and get some tea, but it was just really infuriating. <laughs> So my metabhavna didn't really last very long. You know. So you know the uh, the secret of effective practice really is uh, that it, you can put it into practice in your life. And, but other people mirror you back and they show you where you're at. And we just we do need people to mirror us back so, so much. Otherwise we can cling to this rather unrealistic idea of our insights and attainments. But on the other hand, actually, it's other people who inspire us too and encourage us and say, actually, those qualities you've got, you know, they really are quite developed and, um, you know, you really have changed. Uh, and we, we can believe, you know, other people, if they show us our strengths and they show us our weaknesses. Uh, we have blind spots and it's so hard to see ourselves, isn't it? So, yes, I've put here, there's nothing so wonderful or so difficult as other people. Yeah, well, that's my, well, I mean, nobody here, of course, but there's a... <laughs> people, the thing is, people are just different, aren't they? And that's enough. Different conditionings and different ideas, different opinions, and different ways of doing things like, you know, making tea and fundamental things like that, which can be so difficult to, to live with. They disagree think, with us and want things in their own way. I, put, I was thinking from a psychological perspective, they bring out our shadow sides, don't they? The, or they bring out the greed, hatred and the delusion uh, immediately uh, some, when we're sort of confronted by somebody who doesn't want to do something the way we want to do it. And so, uh, in which we were maybe happily coasting along without having to see our shadow sides, but then this other person brings it up. And in a way, well, we do need to work on those things and we need to integrate uh, we need to see what's going on in our psyches and uh, and, and uh, it can be quite sobering sometimes. It uh, doesn't seem to, you know, there's, in a way there's always more to integrate, which is my current experience, more to integrate. And it's, a, it's, it's a, well, we become bigger, I think, as we keep on doing that integration and other people are very helpful on the way. So this is all why Banti's very much emphasise friendship and collective practice of all types. In our in our Triratna movement, yes, he I can't remember where, but he once talked about the sangha as being like a, a pebble grinder. Apparently, I think in the sixties people used to grind pebbles. I can remember it happening. Yeah. <laughs> I never had a pebble grinder myself, but there was this thing about you get this <laughs> pebble grinder and you put these rocks in, and you come out with this lovely sort of shiny, smooth stones. Um, so there's something about the sangha doing that, sort of just being in contact with each other. It's, it, it, the pebbles would sort of knock, knock each other in the little grinder thing and you knock off, the, the idea is it knocks off the rough edges 
and not only does that but it begins to polish us up a bit and then the, sort of the, the grain that's maybe behind the rough edges begins to shine through um, and uh, we become sort of these beautiful interesting different pebbles yes yeah, so sangha is where our practice comes alive and it also progresses sangha is a field of practice so the whole theme of the year is building the buddha land isn't it building the buddha field and by that really we do mean sangha and creating a real sangha where where you know we really help each other to practice and support each other and we practice together my dream actually of this buddhist center here is of a place where that really does come alive you know and we really are able to and we just love to come here because we meet each other and we share our practice and we talk about our practice and I think we just need to find ways of enabling that more uh, somehow in this in this center I think we, it's such a big building isn't it you need to find little cozy corners don't we to just knock around with each other sometimes somebody needs to start a cafe I think on the ground floor with a cappuccino machine then we'd be there like a shot wouldn't we so the other side of the Sangha, not only is it very beneficial for our practice, it's also very precious. It's a very precious, very rare, rare, really rare thing in the world, the Sangha, the spiritual community that's treading the path to enlightenment of the Buddha. And so it's precious for the world. It's not just precious for us individually. Uh, it's precious for the world. And a, a spiritual community can be a great power for the good. It, when you're with other people, um, well, we can have more of an effect than we can on our own we can be more visible, I think. So certainly, I think when people come along to, uh, as most of us have done, come along to a Buddhist center, I can remember myself just meeting people at the classes and at the festivals and thinking, wow, these people, they're so beautiful and they're so sort of upright and they seem to like each other and I quite like the way they were sort of a bit physical with each other and relaxed and seemed quite open. Uh, and it was just completely different to my experience of relationship and relating um, and the fact that people yeah and there was another experience a very strong experience I had when I was a Mitra I remember I hadn't asked for ordination and I wasn't quite sure why I wasn't asking for ordination and then on a particular occasion I was on a Mitra event and I just saw a couple of Dharmacharinis they'd just come back from a retreat and they were just talking to each other and I was just sort of watching them and there was something so um, unreserved and just sort of open and naked really in their in their meeting of each other it was just completely they were just completely fully present with each other I think and responding to each other and I, I don't know what they were talking about it might have been something quite ordinary but I thought I have felt humbled because I thought I felt I, I haven't got that I can't I don't know how to communicate like that and I really wanted it and I, when I thought about why I asked for ordination that was really one of the factors that triggered me to then do it because uh, I suppose I'd seen something really tangible you know very tangible that I, 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 I suppose I, perhaps we all need to be humbled and see why we need something. We sometimes think we've got it all and we don't need it, uh, but we need to see where what we do need, I think, and, and ask, for, ask, for, ask for help in a sense. Um, yeah, so something about a Dharma centre like this as well is based on a collective endeavour, isn't it? Collective practice. And people walk in the door and they just, they, sometimes they can feel the atmosphere. Mm. You know, very tangibly, they sort of say, what's happening here? What's going on? This is a, there's something different here. So we're this alternative place in the centre of the metropolis, or one, and no doubt there are other alternative places, but yeah, this is very uh, 
public and it's, yeah, I think it's quite something to be able to be to create an open, friendly sangha in a, quite a sort of urban desert, in a sense, because you could you could feel a bit vulnerable, couldn't you? But anyway, I'm going off the track. But we tr that's what we're trying to do, uh, and it's just incredibly important that we do that and we come together and we share ourselves in in that way, so that people like us can find the Dharma, get attracted to the Dharma. So yeah, so these are all reasons why bodhisattvas want to create sangha, um, because because it's so important for, for people to have a sangha to practice within. Um, it's where the dharma comes alive. It's where the dharma becomes real. There isn't a dharma without without a sangha. That's why they try to create Buddha fields, and they help they get get people to help them. They sort of like, sanghas create Buddha fields together, um, or they inspire. So in, in a way. I feel inspired by Bhante Sangharachita's conception of <coughs> the Buddha land and that's what he's, he's very inspired by, this collective myth um, and we're part of that and that's what we're trying to do, we're trying to create a network of Buddha lands and Buddha fields and uh, places where the Dharma can be alive and vibrant. Yes, uh, and so we can all uh, very, very tangibly um, add our energies and to this um, project of creating the Buddha land, creating community. It, there's lots of very straightforward ways we can do that and this, the um, practices of the Sangha of Asus are very much that, they're very, very uh, straightforward and down-to-earth things that we can do. So these four Sangha of Asus, uh, I'm just going to launch into them now. Just a little bit of background. They're, they're actually a traditional teaching that you find in the Pali Canon, in the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, I don't think they're found very much, and apparently somebody was telling me, I think Munishi was telling me, that they're not, they haven't really been brought out much by many of the Buddhist traditions. For some reason, our tradition seems to have brought them out the most. When you put them on, you know, go into the internet and try and Google them, you don't get many readings apart from Bhante and Sabuti, and there isn't very much, and the Pali texts. So that's interesting, really. Uh, yeah, because they, they think they're such beautiful qualities. So uh, it's two words, Sangraha and Vastu. Sangraha sounds like the word Sangha, but it's a different word. It's Sangraha, and it apparently means collecting and gathering and uniting. So it's a sort of a, a bringing together sort of word. And Vastu means, means, it means means, basis or ground for something. So it's the uh, Sangra Vastus are the bases for gathering or the um, means of gathering, the means of bringing together, and the means of bringing together the spiritual community. And so you do get, you get different, a few different translations for what the word means. None of them are really very poetic, um, maybe we need to come up with our own. So Bhante uses a translation, the four means of unification of the spiritual community. There's another one which is nice, the four grounds for the bonds of friendship. Four grounds for the bonds of friendship, which d probably doesn't sound very literal, but it sounds more poetic. And then well, by Thurman, who's a translator of the Vimla Kirtinadesha, which um, anybody who's been, been here over the weekend will have know a lot about the Vimla Kirtinadesha, because uh, Ratnaguna spoke about that, and we had a Vimla Kirtinadesha slideshow as well. Um, and th they appear, uh, Bansi's talk, on the um, Sangra Vasus comes from the 
Vimalakirti Nidesha <laughs> Sutra lecture series, which is year four in the Mitra study course. So if you haven't got that far yet, you're going to really enjoy that when you come to it. Um, yes. Where was I? Yes. So Thurman, who was the translator, he he he. Uh, he, he um, mentions the Sangravastus as four ways in which a bodhisattva forms a group of people united by their common aim of practicing the Dharma. So that's sort of long, but it sort of says it says a lot, doesn't it? It says a lot, a bit more. So the four, these four, the first one is um, dana, which is the practice of generosity. The second one is priya vardita, which is the practice of kindly or loving speech, affectionate speech, even. The third one is Artha or Arta Charya, beneficial activity. And the fourth one is something like Samanatata, which means a, which means exemplification, uh, that's how the translation bounty uses, but it's a little bit more complex that one when I'll go into that a bit later. So yeah, I'm gonna give a little outline of these four because we're gonna be hearing a lot more about them over the next days and uh, in all sorts of ways. Uh, but um, I, I actually, yeah, I gave, I found a talk I'd given on this, maybe it was 1996, which was lucky because I hadn't written my talk yesterday. <laughs> and it, it just reminded me how inspired I am by them. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll admit something now. The, uh, <laughs> I had the whole talk about, apart from one page, which was a page on exemplification. And so at one point I'd been thinking, well, let's have Banti. Let's have Banti's talk. But then I found my talk. I thought, oh, I'll have my talk. But this page was missing. So I thought, oh, well, Banti's bit on exemplification is rather good. So what we're going to do, we're going to have my bits on the first three. And then we're going to hear Banti talking about exemplification, which I thought, anyway, it's quite a good, uh, <laughs> it's quite funny, but it, I think it'll be nice, actually, to, to hear to hear Banti, because it's very vigorous the way he, taught, he teaches talks on these. And this, I actually went to hear this lecture series in 1979 uh, on the Vimla Kirti when I was a very baby newcomer and couldn't understand it at all. Yeah. Anyway, so the first one is then dana, the practice of generosity. And we're looking, so we're looking at this as um, how it helps create sangha. So not just ordinary, just uh, not just generosity in general, but in a way how it how it manifests and how it helps us come together which is an interesting thing to think about. So why does being generous create Sangha? So that's something to think about a bit more. Um, so I was thinking, well, how do we feel when we're given something? Uh, or how do we feel when we give something, actually? So there's a, I think there's a, a feeling of, of uh, well, you sort of go out to the, you really notice the person, don't you, who's giving to you, or um, you rec you're receiving from. I was given something quite interesting yesterday by Catherine. <laughs> blue and white spotted um, kugul. Anyway, so it was really lovely that Catherine thought of me and gave me this blue and white spotted kugul. <laughs> anyway, so I feel this connection with Catherine now because of this lovely kugul, yes, which I'm not sure if I can wear, but that's beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so well, yeah, so it is, it's very heartwarming, isn't it, to, to know that someone's been thinking of us they've been thinking of us and they've maybe got us a present um, they've, they've given they're giving us something maybe it's a just a bar of chocolate or a flower uh, or a smile they give they're sort of giving us they're thinking of us 
Yes, so I, I think well, it obviously opens the heart, doesn't it? It, it can open the heart. It can, it can creates connection. I think in a way, it's tradi- there's a traditional thing about giving, isn't it? That people actually do give in order to, to create connection. I think that's called bribery, isn't it? Sort of. <laughs> but um, I think it's uh, it, it, a genuine giving creates warmth and openness. We've got a little pro- oh, we've got a cramp, yes. Yes. Mm. Yeah, so that's that's creating a bond between people and creating connection. And I think, uh, yeah, a sense, of, a sense of friendship and love. There's a sort of flow, isn't there, with generosity? I think there's a feeling of a flow of energy. Banti says a spiritual community is characterised by the constant exchange of gifts amongst its members. Uh, yes, that's part of the, this lecture actually where he talks about the Sangra Vastus. A spiritual community is characterised by the constant exchange of gifts amongst its members. So just sort of, I think he, he was really encouraging us, just, just give, you know, sort of, if you feel like giving, don't hold back. Why do we, we do hold back, don't we? We think, gosh, I can't give it, that person something else or, uh, you know, or, or uh, what will they think of me if I give them that? But he was just sort of, sort of saying, just don't be so inhibited and, and just give. And I think we, well, I do see a lot of giving. I was thinking, how do we give? We, we give in lots of ways in this Sangha. Um, apart from giving financial help, we, there's a lot of, um, well, people give each other lifts to come to the classes. Uh, we share food. Um, we, give, we listen to each other. We go and have a cup of coffee and share what's going on with each other. Uh, we clean up after the classes. There's just so many different ways that you can't really list them, that people help each other. Yeah. And of course, it's the whole area of generosity. It's not just to do with giving gifts, but I suppose it's more like opening up a spirit of generosity. Well, perhaps giving gifts, doing something tangible, giving a massage, giving a smile. It it opens up this sort of a, a bigger thing, a spirit of generosity a flow of the spirit of giving. And it's just very attractive, I think. It's very, very it's energizing and, and attractive. And it transforms the atmosphere and it actually transforms us in, in the doing of it. And not only that, I think Banti was also saying in his talk, well, after a certain point, uh, we're giving of ourselves in some sort of way. And we do have to loosen up our hold on ourselves. There's something that give, actually giving, um, begins to melt something, uh, a sort of maybe a sort of restraint of the self other, you know, where where I end and where you begin. Giving sort of begins to melt that away. And uh, we have such fixed ideas of ourselves and where we begin and end. And I think giving is one, th- one really practical thing where, where we can just uh, begin to actually work on that in, in a very practical way. So Maitreya Bandhu's talk, I think it was Maitreya Bandhu on Saturday, is really worth listening to from the point of view of generosity. And he was talking about generosity as being something we can do to cultivate love. I think that's right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, to, um, he said it's hard that you can't just cultivate love, but generosity is this really straightforward thing you can do, and it opens the heart. Yeah. So he was talking a lot about generosity. Maybe it's an under, underrated practice. Seems sort of a bit too ordinary, doesn't it? But it's actually quite special. So uh, Priya Vardita is the second of these Sangravasus, which is 
loving or affectionate or kindly speech. So I think it's giving in the form of speech actually. Mm. Giving in the form of speech. In fact maybe all these Sangha Ravasus are a form of giving in different ways. Not holding on to our jewels. So yeah, so unkind speech and kind speech. So different, aren't they? So different in their effects on us and when we even when we say them, let alone when we receive it. So yeah, so we can just think of a time when we've received an unkind word or more than a word. Um, yeah, we can get we can feel very very hurt, can't we? And we can withdraw. Uh, it can be very confusing as well, I think, um, and it definitely separates us from that person. Very hard to really stay trusting somebody who's, you know, being very sharp with you, very unkind with you. Um, and the effect can last, can't it? It can, it can actually go on. That the effect, it's, um, it's actually this sort of sense of being a bit separate from that person or people. So I think trust can be seriously undermined by unkind speech. Um, harsh speech, obviously depending on how the degree of it. Um, so it, it really is important for us to be, you know, just to being as aware as we can of what, in what conditions we find ourselves more likely to be unkind and trying to sort of maybe be more careful in those conditions. Uh, and I, 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 the times, I've had a few times when I've said something very unkind and I felt I can still remember them actually and feel so bad about them and just I think the common factors were that I was very um, caught up in maybe an attachment to somebody and just completely lost my mindfulness something like that it's those sort of times um, yes and so I've seen how hard it can be to regain trust and that the, the person sometimes needs to really demonstrate not only that they understand what they did, they apologise and make amends. And I think that's something we need to think about in a Sangha actually because unkind speech can you know, take a Sangha apart sometimes and um, uh, particularly if people take sides, that sort of thing. So we just need to be, just really take it seriously and uh, yeah, actually help, help people who are in any you know, difficulty due to that sort of thing help them regain, uh, come back into communication. Um, yes. Yes, yeah, so I think, yes, there's four, when you join the order, there's four speech precepts and that's because it's so, uh, in a way, such a difficult area to be skillful in and it needs a lot of, of mindfulness. So that's on the sort of the more serious, negative, as it were, side. Uh, but then, but then, kindly speeches can be so, so powerful and so beautiful. I've got this lovely quote which I'm always very inspired by. It's from a book called Returning to Silence by Dainin Katagiri. And he says, sometimes through a third person, we may hear that someone has spoken kindly of us. At that time, we are really touched. We are really moved by it and we will never forget it. So I think that's, that's just like this little jewel of kind speech. And then he says, that's why wherever we go, we shouldn't speak ill of, of others. If we see someone who is not good, even though he is not in front of us, we should see the good aspects of his life and speak about that to others. This really helps. If such kind speech reaches the person indirectly from a third person, he is really touched by it. So I think the moral there is that repeat, repeat kind things that we hear always to other people, actually. And I think that's a nice practice I can remember when I first heard this lecture, sort of trying that out and um, 
yeah, sometimes you, you sort of, um, yeah, if somebody rejoices in somebody else to you, you could, when you see that person, you can say, oh, such and such was saying, you know, what a beautiful job you did of um, that bunch, bunch, beautiful bunch of flowers or whatever it was, just repeating positive things. It can create a really positive atmosphere. Um, yeah. Um, and Banthi talks about uh, how, yeah, how we, maybe it's a particularly English thing, how we, sometimes we don't say the lovely, kind, affectionate things we're thinking, partly because we're a bit embarrassed or whatever it is, um, or we just can't be bothered, of course, so that's the other one. Um, but uh, <laughs> but just to sort of try and get over that and tell people that we like them or that we admire them. He says even tell people that, you know, tell people we like them, that we enjoy what they're doing, um, that we, you know, just encourage, it's just so encouraging to sort of talk really positively. And this whole culture of um, rejoicing in marriage, I think he, that, he brought that out really with this talk that as a sort of practice, it was, almost became a practice of um, rejoicing in merits uh, that we had to learn to do, sort of just sort of taking it on, taking it seriously. Um, and people, when you rejoice in people's merits, they just sort of open up like flowers. Well, we do, don't we? We just love to be acknowledged and rejoiced in. Um, third, the third is... Uh, Arthur or Arta Charya, beneficial activity. I'll say a little bit less about this one. Um, so I think in general it means apparently it mean it could translate that as doing good, which sounds like being a do-gooder, uh, which we, we got a bit of a downer on, I suppose. From <laughs> too soon, too soon. Stop! Stop! <laughs> You're checking it, Marbury. Thank you. <laughs> right. Okay. That's just a sort of taster for what's to come. Where were we? Okay. So um, beneficial activity. So, but essentially, it means what is doing good, doing whatever is beneficial spiritually, especially whatever helps people to grow. So that's the, you know, the, from the, as a spiritual practice, that's the essential quality to that, doing what is beneficial spiritually. And in his talk, Bhante says, the Bodhisattva practices this by giving people the Dharma, which means sharing with them his own experience of the Dharma, in other words, sharing himself. So I think in a way it can sound very exalted, this thing of sharing the Dharma, uh, a Bodhisattva shares the Dharma. But um, really what that comes down to is sharing our own experience of our own practice of the Dharma as it is at the moment, um, sharing our ups and our downs. It's amazing how other people's experience can be really, really helpful, isn't it, to, to share, to, to hear. Um, all sorts, we, everyone can help everybody else by sharing their experience. Um, yes. <clears throat> Yeah, we don't have to be sort of greatly spiritually gifted or anything to share our experience or feel that we are. Um, just saying that when I did that, this happened, or yeah, or I wouldn't do that because you know that can happen. So I think we don't always realise how much we have to offer, and maybe we under underestimate how much we can actually be of benefit to to each other 
at a peer level and even more so you know perhaps we underestimate how much we can be of benefit to people who are less experienced than us um, yeah I think at the, at the point of becoming a Mitra there's an awful lot already that you can share with someone walking through the door of the Buddhist Center um, yeah I'd say even our newest Mitra down there on the floor <laughs> yeah there's, there's a yeah just uh, in all sorts of uh, ordinary ways yeah. So, um, and Bandy talks a lot about inspiration. He was saying our lives can be a real inspiration to others. So if we feel inspired, express it. Don't be shy and hold back. In fact, all these Sangharastas seem to be to do with not being shy and holding back. Yeah, this, the Sangha really benefits from the sharing of inspiration and experience. I was going to read a quote from Bandy on that. It's very sort of strong. The Bodhisattva benefits people by inspiring them. He benefits them by sparking them off. He benefits them by communicating to them the emotional positivity, the excitement, the creativity, the sheer adventure, if you like, of the spiritual life. That's great, isn't it? The sheer adventure of the spiritual life. The Bodhisattva is like a candle which lights thousands upon thousands of other candles, after which they go on burning on their own fuel. Not only that, each of them in turn lights thousands upon thousands of other candles so yeah it's amazing actually you you know um uh, you don't, we don't always realize how we're helping each other but sometimes someone will come up to you and they'll say you know maybe 20 years ago when you said that to me that that really changed my life you know and you say i can't remember saying that <laughs> i'm not sure if i meant to say that even <laughs> but uh, yeah it's um don't address i think and everything we say is 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 important actually it has an effect so, not quite ready, Barbody, but <laughs> we're almost. <laughs> we're on number four now, which is um, Samana Tata. I think that's how you express it. Uh, that's the fourth Sangravastu, and Bandi translates that as exemplification. But it seems like it's a little bit complicated. This one, we'll go with that. But uh, it seems to be translated or interpreted differently in different places, which I find quite interesting. And they all sound like really quite useful interpretations, so I thought I'd mention them all. So one is uh, treating others as you would treat yourself. It, the, the basis of it with Sama, Sama, in Sama Natata is Sama means something like the same. And so all these interpretations have got something to do with the sameness. So treating others as you would yourself, treating everyone equally, so I suppose that means treating everyone as equally valid human beings who suffer and have joy. Uh, practicing what you preach, so that's a sort of to do with genuineness and authenticity. Um, sharing the joys and sorrows of others with equanimity. Uh, but uh, yes, yeah, so Bounty talks about this as exemplification and we're going to hear him talking about this. I think we are, aren't we Marabodhi? It's going to Bounty talking about exemplification. So fourthly and lastly, last of the means of unification, samanarthata, or exemplification. Here, the bodhisattva's behavior is consistent with his teaching. In other words, his teaching of the Dharma. His behavior exemplifies his teaching. In time-honored phrase, he practices what he preaches. Except, of course, that he doesn't preach. 
the Bodhisattva is the living embodiment of all those qualities, the development of which he encourages in others. So we've seen that the Bodhisattva inspires people, inspires them to lead the spiritual life. But he doesn't just go around exhorting people to be inspired in a dull, flat, lifeless sort of way. He inspires them because he is himself inspired. But here a difficulty arises. Not so much for the Bodhisattva himself, perhaps, but for those who are trying to be Bodhisattvas. What happens? We have, let us say, a vision. We have a vision of the ideal. We have a vision of spiritual perfection. A vision of supreme perfect enlightenment. A vision of the Buddha land. We have this vision. There's no doubt about it, but we are not able to live up to it. Sometimes we fall very far short of it indeed. It's not that we don't sincerely believe in it, sincerely believe in the vision, even see it, even have a glimpse of it sometimes. It's not that we don't actually see it, at least partially, at least occasionally. But we do find it very difficult indeed to transform our lives, transform our being from top to bottom in accordance with that vision. In other words, we come up against that well-known dichotomy between the path of vision and the path of transformation. So what does this mean? Does it mean that because we cannot live up to our own vision, we shouldn't speak about it to other people? Shouldn't try to communicate it to other people? Not at all. All that we really have to communicate is ourselves. All that we really can communicate is ourselves. This means that we must be completely honest with people. Without honesty, there is no communication, or at least there isn't complete communication. So let us speak to people about our vision, yes. Let us communicate our vision to the extent that we can. Let us communicate our efforts to transform ourselves in accordance with it, in accordance with that vision. Let us even communicate whatever successes we have so far achieved. But let us also, if necessary, if occasion arises, let us also communicate our failures. In this way, we communicate honestly. In this way, we communicate completely. In this way, we communicate ourselves. In any case, our vision is not a vision of some fixed and finite goal. Our vision is more like a vision of constant progression, constant upward movement, constant transformation. It's more like a vision of ever-increasing creativity with no perceptible limit. So speaking about our vision really means speaking about that. When we exemplify our vision, this is what we really exemplify. 
Exemplification does not mean being the living embodiment of a particular point in the process of spiritual development, however high that point may be. It means being the embodiment of the principle of spiritual development itself to however limited an extent. It means sure that we're at least making an effort to evolve. Wow. wow. <laughs> it's fantastic, isn't it? It's so, uh, it's so clear and um, real. Uh, yeah. yeah. It just leaves us with something we can do, mm. which is just to exemplify. Uh, well, he talks about exemplifying the process of spiritual growth. That's what we need to, that's all we need to do. And it doesn't matter what point on it we're on. Uh, I guess so understanding the process of what's going on in our spiritual growth is helpful to really communicate that. But uh, just communicating what's going on is, uh, yeah, it's very exciting. I think it's very exciting. So yeah, so that's an overview of these four Sangra Vastus. And I, I think they're fantastic uh, practices and just such a lot of potential in them. And that they all lead to this um, disconnectivity really, they all lead to a deepening trust and openness and com they all lead to communication and getting beyond our shyness as well it sounds like, yeah, all grounds on which a Sangha can grow strong and flourish. Great, so that's it for now, thank you. Thank you.